Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Before we get into this episode, I want to talk to you about something exciting. A brand new eco-nappy from Pura. Now, for the last few months, I've been using Pura Wipes, which are 100% plastic-free, biodegradable, compostable, and free from chlorine, perfume, and alcohol. And I am so thrilled that Pura have now launched a nappy, which is the happiest nappy all around. So many disposable nappies contain harsh chemicals, but Pura nappies are happy on babies' bottoms with soft organic cotton and 0% chlorine, perfumes, and allergens. They're also happy on the planet with their sustainable plant fibre core and 100% green energy manufacturing process. And they're happy on your bank balance from just 12.8p per nappy. I've been using Pura nappies on my toddler twins for the past few weeks and we have had zero leaks. I'm really impressed. They boast up to 12 hours protection and they're available in six sizes from newborn and up. Brilliantly, Pura is the only baby brand to be partnering with Nappy Cycle and working to make curbside nappy recycling in the UK a reality. To find out more and to get your free trial pack of Pura nappies, head to mypura.com. Big thanks to Pura for supporting Not Another Mummy podcast. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. My guest on this episode is activist, writer and Vogue cover star Sinead Burke. Sinead was born with the genetic disorder achondroplasia and at three and a half feet tall is a little person. She's a trained teacher, a disability advocate and she works tirelessly to readdress inequality and the lack of representation in modern society. In her first book, Break the Mould, Sinead offers a heartfelt and inspiring guide to young readers on believing in themselves and finding comfort and pride in their own skin. From the power of being different and discovering self-love to inspiring children to use their voices to be an ally and show friendship to others, Sinead helps readers break the mould and find their place in the world. 
It was so wonderful to chat to Sinead about her experiences. From being invited by Obama to the White House, I mean, no biggie, doing a TED Talk in New York and being on the cover of Vogue, and also her hopes for increasing representation in TV, books, toys, fashion and more. She is a total force of nature, which I'm sure you will discover from our chat. Sinead, a huge warm welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello, this is such a treat to be part of this programme. Thank you so much for having me. It really means the world. Um, now, listen, your book, Break the Mould, is fantastic. Um, I have started reading it with my 10-year-old. We, um, we sat on my bed and we read the first few chapters and she got herself a little notebook and started scribbling down because there's, there's, there's various kind of um, activities, I guess, that you give... Uh, the reader to do to write lists and really think about things so she's got herself a little notebook and she's really into it um it's just so so good what made you decide to write a book aimed at young people well my background is in teaching I'm a primary school teacher by trade if I have any if I have any sort of skills or qualifications it is that one um and I think you know my time in the classroom was so transformative for me personally and professionally that I just really understood the idea that education could be a catalyst for change. It could be a vehicle by which, as trite as it may sound, we could change the world. We could give children skills and tools, but also just give them a safe space where they could be themselves. And I think particularly in the moment in which we are currently within, you know, a pandemic where for so many children, there's been a distance from their friends, there's been a distance from their social activities, that it wasn't initially set up to create this book in this moment but in some ways has never felt more needed to give children and also the inner child and all of us a boost that we are enough just as we are and that we have all of the skills within ourselves already to change the world and it felt timely as I was sitting at home with more time on my hands than usual but yeah I hope that it makes a difference to one child at least. I'm absolutely certain of that. It's interesting though isn't it because so many people are trying to guide and change the behaviours and attitudes of grown-ups when it comes to being more inclusive and, um, you know, the way that we treat people who are different to us. And it kind of feels like it makes so much sense to go to the kids. It's like, as well as, you know, working to change the attitudes of adults, getting in there when they're young and really trying to shape the way they see the world feels like such a a brilliant, inspired way to tackle this problem, doesn't it? I think it's about creating that grassroots approach to change. You know, I do some work in the fashion industry and I think it's equally important that we talk to CEOs as we also talk to design students. But I think it's the same when we think about this notion of equity, inclusion, equality as very broad principles, that we cannot just be focused on adults, that we do need to challenge the systemic biases and the conditioning that has already come into play. But why not start at eight-year-olds or even four-year-olds? Why not give them permission to dream and to imagine what a future could look like because in many ways they're going to be the individuals who are going to be shaping it and using my experience as a disabled woman and as a teacher it felt like the right place to at least begin that conversation because you know 
children respond to difference with curiosity, with empathy, rarely with malice. This follows on quite nicely from um, the last episode that um, I recorded, which was basically all about the lack of representation in kids TV. So how, you know, included in that is how how few disabled kids and grown-ups we see on kids TV. I think, yes, I think you're absolutely right. Visibility and representation is so important. You know, as a teenager and a young adult who was interested in the fashion industry, I would have done anything to pick up a magazine, to go through a store and see a campaign of a body that didn't even just look like mine, but looked something like mine, looked something different from whatever the definition of normality or beauty was within that era. Yeah, so it must have been a really big moment for you to appear on the cover of Vogue magazine because you mentioned that you've been involved with fashion and um, I know from reading your book and reading, you know, and listening to interviews that you've done in the past that um, you were an avid reader of Vogue growing up. Um, and like you say, you, you, you didn't see bodies that looked like yours coming, you know, looking back at you from the pages of, of, of that magazine. So how did it feel when earlier this year you were a cover star? It was incredibly surreal. I mean, as a teenager, my birthday is in September and I had always asked my parents to purchase the September issue of Vogue as a birthday gift. Sometimes because it was the biggest issue of Vogue, it was often the most important issue of Vogue. But even though there was, you know, a high number of ads, I didn't even know that that's what they were. I just loved, you know, the actual physical act of page to page, looking at this beautiful imagery, this escapism to a new world. And it was just extraordinary. And for me then to be in a position to then be in that magazine, to be on the cover of that magazine, of that issue. You know, I think there was a real nervousness attached to it because I felt like whilst I couldn't speak for anybody who was not me, there was a real understanding that my positioning within that magazine would reflect on others. But I think the best parts of being on that cover were sharing it with some extraordinary women. But it was the private messages and the you know, the emails that I received from families and individuals all over the world who not just were little people, but who were disabled or different in some way and saying, you know, for the first time, I realized that fashion is a space for me or now that Vogue has been conquered, I want to be a Michelin star chef or I want to be a race car driver or I want to be a teacher. And that notion of if you can see it, you can be it manifesting within my work was just so extraordinary. I think that's one of the the kind of most incredible messages to come through your book as I was reading it with my 10 year old it really was that 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 message of you can be anything you want to be like you say you can be a Michelin star chef you can be a racing driver follow your dreams and it's such it's such a powerful message to give to kids isn't it yes it really is and that's something that you talk about in your TED talk, isn't it? And I mean, it's such, it's so brilliant. I feel like I've got a million questions on the fact you've done a TED talk alone. Um, but yeah, you, you, you talk about how in your family, you, so have you got four brothers and sisters? There are so many of us. <laughs> so you and your dad have both got achondroplasia, haven't you? Um, but your mum and your siblings are all average height. That's it. Yeah, they are average type and non-disabled. And you spoke in your TED talk about how um, the fact that you grew up in such a loving, supportive family and that your parents really instilled that, that sense of you can go out and you can achieve anything in this world had a huge, huge impact on you. 
it was so crucial to the person that I became. And even now, I mean, it's so funny, we've had some technical difficulties with trying to put this interview together, which your audience will never know. <laughs> but in the midst of the technical difficulties, the first person I rang was my mother. And I'm 30 years old. And I was like, Mom, I'm struggling. Well, I can't figure out the Wi-Fi. And, you know, she is still the person I lean on to help plot those those solutions in a way. So I think for me, I never knew that anything was impossible in the sense because my parents never articulated that. I knew that I may have to find a different way in which to go about it to achieve it. But for me, that, that love and support and safety net that my parents provided at such a young age shaped my ambition, my personality, my tenacity and just my perspective on life as a whole. And I would be an entirely different person without That's it. That's incredible. That's amazing. And it also is a bit terrifying because as a mum, the, the pressure that that puts, <laughs> that puts on me to try and instill those values in my kids, it's like a bit terrifying. Um, now, okay, so you went through school. And at what point did you, I guess, do your first act of, of activism? Was, was it starting your blog? Was it challenging the fashion industry? It was probably when I was still in school. You know, when I was in sixth class or fifth class in Ireland, maybe it was even younger, fourth class, which is in around kind of eight to 10 years old, I was moving into kind of, you know, the part of the school where the desks were getting more elaborate. They weren't those, you know, desks that we're familiar with for kind of four and five-year-olds. And actually when I was in school, we had these old inkwell desks that you used to sit with a partner in. And I remember the solution that the school came up with was for me to take one of the desks that was in, you know, the school, the the classrooms of those who were four and five, to place one of those desks at the front of the classroom and for me to sit at that desk so that I could be comfortable whilst everybody else sat at these elaborate antique inkwell desks. And I remember saying to my teacher and to my friends, this isn't fair. Whilst, yes, they were thinking about my comfort, I felt that it was a signifier of something that made me other. Like, why couldn't we amend the desks that everybody else had to accommodate for me to fit within rather than trying to other me with this solution that wasn't really a solution? And in the end, we worked together and we worked with the caretaker of my school, who was this incredible man. And we built this small flight of wooden stairs for me to like climb up to this inkwell desk to sit into. And it worked. And I got to be seamless in my inclusion of the classroom. And I think it's having the strength or the courage or the innocence to be able to ask those questions of like, well, actually, no, that's that's not fair. <laughs> like, why? Why are we doing this? Why can we not just change the system and change the furniture? So it was probably as early as that, which then evolved to writing a fashion blog. I think it began again kind of out of frustration or feeling that the system was unjust. You know, as the eldest of all of my sisters, I felt like it was my responsibility to show them the route through fashion. And I remember it being a revelation, though I'm embarrassed to say that it was a revelation, that when I went shopping with them, that they could access everything independently, whether it was picking something up off a rail or going to the cash register or even accessing the changing rooms. And this notion that they could buy something in store and leave the shop wearing it, having just bought it, was just so alien to me because I would have to go through this process of, you know, needing somebody to help me through the actual 
process of shopping itself and then moving to, okay, well, bringing it to a seamstress, having to wait six to eight weeks in order to have it altered, in order to be able to actually functionally wear it. And I just thought, this is so unfair. We both understand and want to access clothes because for me, clothes were this powerful tool where it challenged people's assumptions over what I was and what I could do based on being a little person because people would look at me and make all sorts of commentary, some positive, quite often negative, but yet fashion gave me the tools to challenge that narrative and to present something that I had agency over. And yet it wasn't an industry that included me. So I began through a lens of education, researching everything I could about the industry and doing my utmost to try to document it. And the blog just became a way to get the information out of my head and away from my loved ones who were, you know, kind of tortured by my talk about the industry. And I think even at that stage, I had the assumption that I was the only person who was excluded from the fashion industry ever. What became really important was this realisation that actually the majority of people feel excluded from the fashion industry. And how can that be when we all have to wear clothes? And what were the tenets that united our exclusion that we could put together to provide an argument to the industry for inclusion. And it really just evolved from there. That's amazing. And you ended up being invited to the White House off the back of that, didn't you? I did. Um, It was one of those surreal things where I got an email, which was, you know, had this presidential seal on it, inviting me to the White House during the Barack Obama era. And I didn't respond because I assumed it was spam because what would the Obama administration be doing? Well, you would, wouldn't you? Well, I kind of thought that the next question would be like, click here and submit your bank details. Yes. I'd be like, okay, <laughs> here's my pin, take my money. It's only going to cost you 12,000 euros to, you know, to access but, this amazing event. Well, like, I, I live in a small town in Ireland. Why would the Obama administration be interested in me coming to Washington and the White House and I just thought this is so bizarre and didn't really think anything of it at all and then got a follow-up email which kind of said you know President Obama would like to know if you would like to confirm to coming to Washington (laughs) and I was like oh I best reply to that very quickly. It's that classic um, just checking that you got this email but it was actually Obama you know one one of his team sending that to you. Totally so like you know that kind of notion of like Sorry to disturb you during, you know, the most turbulent of times, but just checking in, the president would like to know if you'll be coming. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll book the flight, so I'll go. But it was just incredible. They were coming to the end of their their administration and to place such a focus on an emphasis on disability design and fashion was, I think, really empowering and really put this issue under the spotlight. And yeah, it's one of those moments where you just pinch yourself and getting to visit Washington and all of the different museums and galleries that they have there was really exceptional. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Over the next few minutes, you'll hear me chatting to Emily Murray from The Pink House about Volvo. We recorded this chat a few weeks ago when government restrictions allowed socially distanced indoor meetups. We sat in her car to record it with me in the back seat and her in the driver's seat. So we were safely distanced. I'm taking a short pause on this episode to remind you that it's being brought to you with Volvo. And rather excitingly, I'm currently sitting in a Volvo XC60 with the car's owner, Emily Murray from Pink House Living. Hello, Emily. Hello. So we're sitting in your car, aren't we? We are indeed. <laughs> Welcome. I feel like you need to do something like beep the horn or do something to prove. Shall I do that? Yeah. Shall I actually? Yeah. Right. There you go. <laughs> oh my God, I feel so naughty. Your neighbours are going to be like looking out thinking, who's doing that? <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it. Um, so Emily, for anyone who isn't familiar with you, do you want to uh, tell us a bit about yourself? I am the founder of The Pink House, which is a blog and a brand and a business. It's about interiors, it's about colour, it's about fun and playfulness. And Pink House Living is my Instagram account and I have a book of the same name called Pink House Living. And I basically just like to live my life in as sparkly and pink a way as possible. So a kind of good way to describe what you do is um, you have a trapeze fitted in um, your family room. Yes. And um, I've seen videos of you decked out in sparkly leotards uh, showing us what you can do on said trapeze. Is that a fair, you know, a fair yeah. analysis of, of, of your work? I, <laughs> I would say that the trapeze kind of sums up me and my attitude to life. Yes, it's totally impractical and it's fun to hang on upside down. However, one part of you which is practical... Mm is the fact that you have got a Volvo XC60. Mm. Um, And something I really wanted to chat to you about was what made you guys buy this car. You've had it for quite a few years, haven't you? Yeah, we bought this car when my second child was still very young. And it's the first new car that I've ever owned. It was very exciting. Did you feel like a proper grown-up buying a new car? (laughs) I I, I felt like a proper grown-up. I also felt a little bit naughty. Buying a new car was something I'd never done. As a kid growing up, we'd never had new cars. But... In this instance, buying new meant that we got to choose every single detail of the car. I was like, oh my God, this is shopping as I like it. So a Volvo was something I'd always wanted. And I'd always wanted a four-wheel drive as well. Um, This is actually only the second car I've ever owned as a driver. Because I only learnt to drive when I was 30, when I was pregnant. So you were living in Edinburgh when you bought the Volvo, weren't you? So you were kind of 
um, a bit more like, nearer the countryside and I guess able yes. to use a four-wheel drive. Yeah, because we did, we did find ourselves on the odd muddy track, but I also just like the idea of a sturdy car where I felt like I was a bit higher up and obviously I had two young children and I was a you know relatively new driver, so I wanted something that made me feel really safe, but I also wanted something that looked quite sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is so this car is an XE60. It's this beautiful blue. I just absolutely adored it, and it has this like special trim on the like sort of like sailing trim. Look, it's got like the special stitching and everything. Yeah. So are, are these leather seats? Yes. So look at the stitching here on the doors as well. Yeah. It's, it's like a zigzag stitching, yeah. isn't it? It's very posh, and on the steering wheel. Basically, it was the car of my dreams. Um, given I had kids i mean otherwise i'd probably have gone for some sort of like open top number but you know that wasn't practical <laughs> you gotta be practical yeah. and uh and the big sunroof as well that was another big thing that we wanted so yeah um now one of the things that i love about volvo is how committed they are to safety um and their cars are packed with incredible safety features what are some of the features that you love about your xc60 so i really love all the kind of parking features it's handy, isn't i it? find it really good yes and i think the parking feature that i like the best is the 360 degree camera because there's actually four cameras around the car aren't there and it shows you um, a virtual uh, bird's eye view picture of the car surroundings which helps you park i love the fact that i can park with confidence i as a woman i feel that it's important particularly important my mum told me to be a good parker because you don't want to conform to any gender stereotypes so uh, it helps me be really slick at parking also how cool is the cross traffic alert you know when you're reversing out of a parking space um, and you can't really see very clearly behind you um, and there are sensors on the car aren't there which detect vehicles approaching and if it thinks that you're going to collide with one of them it will break on your behalf exactly and it's happened just a couple of times i'd like to point out i am a good driver but it has braked on my behalf that's so reassuring to mm. have that isn't it um it's funny isn't it because you never hear people talking i mean you were talking about like the blue stitching and you know that you feel that the car is a bit sexy um, and people you don't hear people talking about the safety features of a car in the same way mm. as the blue stitching or the sound system or the cool sat nav why do you think safety isn't seen as something that's cool so yeah i mean i guess it, safety is cool kind of because of what it then allows you to do because I'm not worrying when I'm in the car when I'm going to go on a journey I'm not worrying about the kids I'm not worrying that I'm gonna you know crash into somebody like genuinely my car makes me feel safe and and it's an enjoyable experience so as a result I have more time to think about like <laughs> how I'm going to buy some really cool treasures or you know it genuine I think feeling safe generally in life freeze your mind mm. and you can direct that in the direction of cool should you so desire i think that's yeah spot mm. on spot on emily a huge thank you so much for being my guest today and a massive thank you once again to volvo for supporting not another mummy podcast for more information search online for volvo today uh now emily where are you going to drive me to shall we go to that nice cafe that's got some nice let's do it let's go That's amazing. And then the other really super impressive thing, I mean, you know, basically you've got a whole list of super impressive things that you've achieved. But the, the other thing that I want to ask you about is you got the Irish government to include a new word in the Irish language dictionary, didn't you? Um, I did, because I'm bold like that. Um, <laughs> but being a primary school teacher here in Ireland, you have to speak Irish. And I remember being in my final year in school having to do my Irish oral exam. And usually the first question that you're asked is, which means, 
describe yourself? Like, how do you describe yourself? And, you know, the response to that is usually, hi, I'm Sinead, I'm a little person. But I realized that, you know, at 17, there wasn't language within the Irish language for me to be able to describe myself as that. There was a word for dwarf, which is a word that many little people are comfortable with, but I prefer to use the term little person. So I ended up being in this situation at 17 going, okay, well, I can't make up a word because they'll, you know, dock me in marks and I really need to go to university. So I ended up having to use language that I wasn't comfortable with. And when I got a little bit older and a bit braver and a bit more of a platform, I kind of just thought, well, what's the worst that can happen by asking? So I emailed Fers Nagwaelga, which is the department responsible for the Irish language, and just said, hi, my name is Sinead. You don't know me, but I have a question. How do we get a word put into the dictionary? And they responded back and said, well, what's your suggestion? And I suggested Dinabiog, which is the direct translation of little person. And they said, great, it's in the dictionary. And for me, what was so powerful about that was it wasn't necessarily about me, but that who is the next 17-year-old who has to go into an oral examination like that and for the first time won't have to worry about not having the language they need to describe themselves. Yeah. And for me, that was just so powerful and important that... I'm excited to see who else gets to add words to a dictionary because I think, again, you know, language is one of those things that's shaped by our biases and our perspectives. So no wonder there isn't a word for a little person within it. But equally, language is something that should be evolving and, you know, as, as the world is evolving. So absolutely, these words, you know, should be, should be inserted and added to it, shouldn't they? Absolutely. That would be so great. <laughs> more of it, please. Yes, absolutely. More, more. Um, so we talk about being a good ally. Um, in case that term is new to the listener, what exactly does it mean? For me, allyship is putting yourself in a vulnerable position for the betterment of others. I think often we correlate allyship with privilege. And privilege for me is a, a term that really tries to quantify the assets you have or the characteristics you have or the parts of the identity that you've inherited that skew you closer or further away from the lens through which most systems have been built. So this notion that if you are white, straight, cisgendered, thin, non-disabled and of a middle class background, it's not that life is going to be easy for you but it's probably going to be easier because there are just things that you don't have to think about, such as the lock on the bathroom door or being in a public space and being harassed or having questions asked about your hair and, and natural hair when you're in work. And for me, allyship and privilege are kind of intertwined in the sense that for those of us who have more of those credentials that, that skew us to how the world was designed for and by, it's about leveraging those. And, you know, for example, there's a section in the book which helps children think through how this might be relevant to their lives. So one of the scenarios is that, you know, a group of children are in the playground and one of the child's friends points to somebody else in the playground and says, he's gay. And it asks the question to the child, like, what do you do? Because in this situation, you're not the perpetrator. You're not the person saying and pointing somebody out and saying he's gay. But what responsibility do we each have to assert ourselves in that moment and maybe make ourselves vulnerable for the betterment of the other person? And it suggests 
that the child say, maybe he is gay. It's okay to be gay, but it is not okay to be cruel and unkind. And in that moment, that child is stepping out of their comfort zone, stepping out of themselves, but doing it for the safety of another person, which in many ways that person might not even know or acknowledge. It's not about the child themselves making the statement, but addressing the fact that our actions have repercussions and we all have this incredible responsibility and opportunity with our words and our actions, our thoughts and our behaviours to make the world a safe space for people to just be themselves. Absolutely. So what kind of things as, you know, as parents, you know, um, who are listening, um, what can we be doing to encourage allyship and with it acceptance and kindness in our kids? I think the most important thing that you can do is encourage curiosity. And by that, I mean, you know, if I'm in the supermarket, a child will often see me and a child will say, look, there's a little woman. And the adult's immediate response is sheer panic. And they try to distract the child. They try to, like, ignore the child. And all that happens is the child grows increasingly frustrated and louder and just says, look, look at that little woman. Until the adult physically removes that child from the aisle by zooming past in the trolley. And what's happened in that situation is the adult doesn't know what to do. The adult doesn't know what to say and they cannot believe that their child are embarrassing them in this way. After all, they raised their child with empathy. But by removing the child from the aisle, what happens is that they are unintentionally telling that child that I am not something to look at, nor am I, some, nor am I something to speak to. They don't humanise the conversation. And the difficulty is, is that there is no curriculum of inclusion in school or the world in which we exist. So there was no opportunity for that conversation to be reframed ever again. And instead of the adult making it about themselves, like the only solution that can be there is that the child says, well, why don't you just say hello? And I think if we as adults embrace the curiosity that children have, never assuming that we know all the answers because... That's impossible. But actually humanizing conversations in a way in which we're not, again, reconditioning those biases because a child just wants to say hi. Yeah, yeah. Um, I heard Dr. Pragya Agarwal, who talks a lot about um, bias and um, inclusion. Um, she uh, was talking about how uh, parents shushing uh, their kids when they're, you know, saying, why is that, mommy, why is that, that lady got you know, different skin colour to us? Why has she got brown skin? Or, you know, all of those kind of really kind of straightforward questions that kids might ask. Um, that the, the, the mum or the dad shushing the, the, the child is kind of attaching shame to the question and the situation. And it's, it's kind of sending the whole wrong message. So do you think that it's about, do you think in this situation, it's about parents really educating themselves and being open to those conversations rather than it being a source of discomfort for themselves. I absolutely agree. I think we need to embrace this notion of, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And I think there are two opportunities, you know, maybe going back to that moment in the supermarket, there is an opportunity for me as an individual to say hello, to bridge that gap and to kind of facilitate a very initial conversation, helping to educate that child and that adult. But that's not to put the responsibility on every disabled person or every person who's different to educate the majority about our existence. But it's an opportunity that I often take 
being a teacher. But I think there is. I think we have never lived in an era with so much resources, so much information, whereby, you know, parents can be following a diverse array of people on social media, particularly on a place like Instagram, where people are sharing aspects of their lives to develop your vocabulary, to develop your insight and your perspective, to be able to scaffold those questions. But even if you don't know the answer and don't know exactly what to say, allow that to be an opportunity for you and your child to learn together. And, you know, after the supermarket, you say, you know, that conversation we had earlier today, I actually don't know what the kindest words are to talk about people who look like that. Why don't we do some research? Let's see what you can find. Let's see what I can find and make it collaborative instead of assuming that adults are all knowing, all consuming beings. Because we're not, are we? <laughs> it's just, it's so much pressure to pace. Our, it's, it's so much pressure to put ourselves under. We touched on representation earlier and yes. um, representation in toys is clearly a huge problem. Um, now you've collaborated on a Lottie doll, haven't you? Yes. Designed as a little person. Um, how did that come about? And what can, you know, what can we do to try and get more toy manufacturers to be creating more inclusive uh toys for kids um I tortured Lottie dolls mercilessly is the answer to that question um (laughs) no I they were doing such great work um and have this really wide array of diverse dolls and for me when I was thinking about that you know as a young girl all I wanted was to see myself reflected in different spaces and one of them was dolls you know if we look at traditional dolls they were you know the measurements that they had were so alien to actually human measurements that it was, again, redefining what beauty or what femininity looked like. And I think I would have done anything for a doll that looked like me. So when I met the CEO of Lottie Dolls, I kind of just brazenly said to him, you should make a doll that's a little person. And he was like, "Uh, yeah, okay. And it was never my intent that the doll be a Sinead doll or be after me, but just that a doll existed in a way but it was so brilliant to do with a number of medical practitioners to ensure that the dimensions of dolls were anatomically correct but also to do a collaboration with little people of ireland it was a voluntary project on my behalf but one euro of every sale of that doll goes to little people of ireland and also within the box to include educational information about dwarfism so that it wasn't just a tool where we hand this doll over to a child but it there's information within the box that parents could share with children or children could read themselves just to give them a broader insight into the meaning of the value of this doll. And I think from a consumer perspective, you know, I think what we can be doing, whether we like it or not, for so many toy manufacturers, what will instigate change is customer market value, if that makes sense. And that's not to like adhere to some capitalist notion, but if more diverse products become more successful than the ones that have been done since time immemorial, that will force the industry to change. But I think it's also having the bravery and the courageousness to question these companies and say, hey, you know, where is the doll that's autistic with a support dog? Hey, where is the doll that's deaf, that signs? or whatever it might be. And I think until we all begin to ask these questions, we are given permission for the status quo to remain. So what's next? I'm guessing you must have a long list of <laughs> things that you want to see changed and you know tackle. So what, what's next on your list? I am so fortunate that I spent my 30s racing from one ambition to the next and got to achieve so many 
of my goals, which really genuinely did feel impossible. And I think now what I'm really trying to map out is, okay, great, I got to achieve all of these things, but has change happened? Has progress occurred for those who are not me? And how do I leverage the position that I now exist within to do that? So I set up a company last year called Tilting the Lens, which is trying to do that work, trying to scale it, trying to ensure that it's it's not just me doing this work, nor, nor is it, but that we can, you know, move from fashion to education, to technology, to car manufacturing, to, you know, developing scholarships and programs and bursaries for disabled people to enter into university degrees that may be unaffordable or inaccessible to them. So I have long-term ambitions from, yeah, broadcasting to maybe, I don't know if I'll ever write another book. The trauma has not left me from this one. But (laughs) yeah, I'm kind of open to opportunities that are kind of rooted in systemic change. Fantastic. Well, I for one cannot wait to see what you do and, you know, how, how things develop and change. Um, Sinead, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been incredibly inspiring to chat to you. I didn't even get to chat to you really about your TED talk. So that's for <laughs> that's for that's for another day. <laughs> we can when we can meet and have coffee, we can do that another time. Yeah, yeah. When when things are a little bit in that era. Exactly. When will that ever happen? <laughs> but if it, if it does, we're doing that. It's we're going to keep positive. But thank you so much. And thank you for your patience with my technical difficulties. I'm deeply unprofessional, <laughs> but thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Sinead. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.